Good morning. Great to be here this morning. Uh, what a wonderful time of worship and of being in the presence of God. Uh, we are about to embark on this reflections and, and this focus, um, but I would like to open in prayer. And Alan has just uh, told me some fantastic news that we should give thanks for. Uh, Vera and, uh, uh, sorry, Elmer uh, was in uh, brain surgery, life-changing brain surgery on Friday, but it all went well, so we're praying for him and we're praying for Vera that uh, God would continue to be glorified in their lives. So join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the amazing mercy that you have, that we can come to you with all of the concerns in our hearts and that you hear them. We praise you for this answer to prayer from surgery that touches our very community, but touches uh, the very brain that uh, you've given us to think and consider. And we thank you that that's gone well. We pray your blessing that uh, your presence will be with us, that you would be glorified, that by all that we do this morning, by all that we pray and by all that we think and by lives that are changed and transformed, by the power of your love and by the mercy of your grace and by the holiness that you display in the cross. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The theme of our uh, series for the next three weeks is Be Glorified. And we were just singing a lot of amazing songs about this exact is issue of God being glorified in our lives. And we're going to be looking at this amazing prayer that Jesus prays and uh, that's recorded for us in John chapter 17. And you might have that open. You might have it open over the next few weeks as we look at this. Uh, this morning, we have the uh, unbelievably challenging task, but only looking at five verses. Uh, five verses which are radical in, their, in what they tell us about the nature of God. And so Jesus prays at this time that, that God would be glorified and that he would be glorified through uh, what's about to take place. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to look on the screen, and we're going to just uh, quickly read. This is uh, in John's um, record of Jesus' sort of final discourse to his disciples. He takes them aside and tells them the kinds of things to expect, the way they're going to have trouble in the world and the way God is going to be with them and comfort them and would, would give them knowledge. And after speaking to the disciples, he speaks to God. And many of the prayers of Jesus are not recorded for us. We don't have a lot of details about the specific things that he prayed. But what is extraordinarily clear is that uh, the prayers that are recorded for us are significant, and we should pay attention. The Lord's Prayer is one that just defines a, a, an amazing spirituality, and this prayer reveals a spirituality. It reveals uh, the heart of God and, and the heart of Jesus under difficult circumstances. So we're going to read it a couple times. Uh, we'll read it first, this first time sort of through, and just see what strikes you and what strikes each of us. So if you have John chapter 17, starting at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all the people that he might give eternal life to those that, that you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before 
the world began. Remarkable passage. And what we're going to try to do is unpack it and let it speak both to our minds and to our hearts this morning. When you think about glory, when we sang about glory, what images come to mind? There's a whole bunch of natural images, I think, that come to mind. The, the, the essential ideas, to me, always brings out that sort of sense of brightness or uh, of uh, light and radiance, uh, of beauty, of, uh, of the power of these things. So there's some images up on the screen there. Uh, the images are the kinds of things I think we think about with glory quite easily. We might think of great wealth symbolized by gold. Gold is glorious to look at. If you've been to some of the places that display gold in a particular dramatic sense, it's hard not to be impressed. Uh, I remember uh, as a fairly young person visiting the Tower of London uh, where they've got on display royal scepters and amazing jewels. And it, it was glorious. It, it it's had one stunned at the wealth and the power of the world. Or perhaps uh, it's some monument that humans have made. Out of curiosity, any, anybody recognize the, the picture on the left at the bottom? Very famous church and very famous place. Uh, this is St. Chapelle in, uh, near uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Uh, its stained glass are considered to be some of the most glorious in the world. Around this amazing chapel, the entire Bible unfolds for you. Each image is representing different parts of it, and if you follow the story, it's an amazing embodiment of, of the glory of the Bible, the glory of Revelation. And the light is always changing in there. It's, it's, it's quite a spectacular place. Um, you might recognize the other picture, perhaps. Uh, the other picture was uh, actually on, uh, I, I took it at Ajax on Christmas Eve this last year. Uh, it's just a glorious sunset. Uh, those are some of the images that might come. It might be a beautiful garden. It might be a beautiful flower. It might be a baby who laughs or chuckles. Uh, it might be uh, Chris Hemsworth playing Thor. Uh, yeah, another form of glory. Uh, yeah, I don't know what your images are. The context of this prayer is not any of those things. Right? The context of this prayer is not the best that humans offer. It's not spectacular glory. It's not brightness and, and light. Jesus knew at this point that he was going to the cross. He knew what that was going to cost him. He knew that it was going to involve betrayal. He knew it was going to involve suffering. Uh, it was a dark chapter. He knew at this point, I think very clearly, that it would also lead to the ultimate vindication of his righteousness. It would lead to the resurrection, the entire Easter story. I think that, that conviction, that, 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 that absolute surety was even taken away from him at the garden. Uh, he was more human and having a real sense of uncertainty about what was this all going to lead to. But at this point, those things are clear to him. But what is totally clear, that the station and vicinity here is the context of this. It's a cross and an empty tomb. You know, we sanitize our images of the cross. Uh, where there's an image there. Uh, we put the image of the wooden cross there because people weren't able to see that the, the windows are arranged as a cross. Right? There's crosses within crosses. If you, if you open your mind to that, you start being aware that crosses are everywhere. We in the Protestant tradition have empty cross. 
Uh, and I think the danger of the empty cross is that you minimize the reality of what Jesus suffered on the cross. A crucifix that has Jesus on the cross is also perhaps dangerous because it's only, again, half the story. That, that, that Christ came down and was, was resurrected. Right? But now we've split apart two truths and, and the two truths that should be together that, that both symbolize what happens at Easter. We have both Good Friday and we have Easter morning. And it is a different kind of glory. What makes this glorious? What makes this glorious is, is not that blood is red and bright. Right? It's, it's not that humans suffer. But in this act, in this relinquishing of power, that God demonstrates his love for us. That, that he demonstrates his grace that is active and alive in our lives. That, that God shows in no uncertain terms that he cares that he's with us. God, Emmanuel, God with us, even in our suffering, even in our own challenges and difficulties. If you knew that you were about to go on a major ordeal, indeed, if you knew that you were going to be tortured and killed, what would be on your mind? I think there'd be many, many things on my mind, and I don't very much. I would be praying the prayer of Jesus in John 17. This is a prayer that's not about doubt or anger. It's not about recriminations. It's not about blame. It's not about being hurt himself. It's, it's not about uh, a kind of self-preoccupation, um, as suffering so often brings, a complete self-absorption. doesn't pray those things. He prays that God will be glorified through the suffering and through its ultimate vindication. He prays that the disciples would have unity. That's what we're going to be looking at. That they would be together, that they would understand the nature of God, that they would have eternal life. It is a radical statement of, of the nature of God himself. This prayer so embodies the heart and soul of Christ that what he's concerned about at the time of greatest need and greatest urgency. We have this, I, I, I know in myself, I, I, I know in others that have confessed it to me, I suspect in many of you, I, I can so minimize my, my, my feelings and my difficulties. I, I can so minimize my sin, you know, sort of build up my, my sense that I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, you know, I, 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 there's so many people that are worse and, and don't realize to what extent that that's so often a statement of privilege that I haven't really had that much to suffer from compared to some. Uh, that, that, that I, I build that up. In the cross, we have sin revealed for what it really is. It's war on God, right? It, it, it's the anger, if we're all honest, I think. We experience it sometimes. God, God, why did you let it happen? Where were you, God? You know, you saved others. Save yourself, right? The taunts, the, the impatience, the anger, the rebellion, the murderous rage. Those are in my heart. It only takes the right kind of stimulus, and I know how uh, potentially violent I can be. Bruce Coburn captures it well, that if I had a rocket launcher, somebody would die, Right? 
That, that moment when, when, when you just, in, in anger and frustration, uh, that you, you know, you're, you're full of murderous rage against other humans or against God. And in the events of Easter, we have the revelation of the true character of God, that God took our anger. He took the spit that we put on his body with the, the lashes, the crown of thorns, the mockery, the nails through his hands and his feet. And in those moments of complete rejection of someone who'd lived a life that was only goodness personified, a life that was full of compassion and care that we talked about so profoundly through Donna's message last week, in the midst of all of that, what did he say? Forget them, God. They're no good. He didn't say that. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And in the cross of Christ, we have our forgiveness. The image of falling at the feet. You know, the re glory of God revealed. The centurion, after he watched the nature of that death, didn't say oh, he deserved to suffer. Didn't say he deserved to die. Didn't say he got what was coming to him. Do you remember what he said? My Lord and my God. And I think that's the only possible reaction to the cross of Christ. As I've said a number of times before, that you stand at the cross and you understand that it was voluntary. You understand it was a supernatural coalescence of the will of God and the will of Jesus and the will of the people. And they came together in, in, in a suffering death that brought together mercy and justice. And you say, my Lord and my God, or you say, I don't give a damn. There, I don't think there are any other choices. You can't be neutral about such an event. But in this amazing event, the love of God is revealed. The glory of God is revealed. Glory is an accurate and complete representation of the character and life and goodness of God himself. Where else can you see that God participates with us, that God cares with us, that he suffers with us, that he's God, Emmanuel, except at the cross itself? God made himself subject to his own creation. He entered into it. That's what we mean by the incarnation. He entered into his creation not to have simple answers, not to be Superman, not to be four, Right? Not to be Captain America, right? but to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, the one who suffered with us. And so we come to Easter, a celebration of God incarnate who dies for our sake, who rose again. The next image of this, uh, this, this next one is, is a marvelous image. It, uh, yeah, move the slide forward. Look at these words. These words are remarkable. Look at this passage just briefly again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you have granted him authority over all people that they might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that... They know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had since the world began. The amazing glory of God revealed in a horrible death, in a horrible death that was taken on voluntarily, that we would be forgiven, that he died on our behalf, that he was the substitution, he was the the paschal lamb. When we do the Seder and we remember the, 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 the feast of the Passover, Passover involved the shedding of blood, the, the lamb that was sacrificed for the sake of our sins. And as Jesus walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have crossed the Kindred Valley, Kindred Valley and seen the, the creek that was probably red with the, the, the blood of sacrifices. And yet in this, he revealed God in his glory. Look at the irony of the words, right? Authority. He was given authority. It looked like he was helpless. That he was subject to the whims of a corrupt and not very justice-oriented criminal system. That he was persecuted and trumped up charges. That things taken out of context. What authority is there? The authority was there to give eternal life. Eternal life in the midst of a death. You know, this passage is just so full of, of double meaning for those of us who are on the other end of the cross. And the image that I was trying to jump to before and uh, getting ahead of myself is this image here. The image of looking at the crosses on the hill. Not one cross, but three crosses. The one who suffered with us. The one who took the punishment that, that we deserve, that, that, that we have companionship even there. But it's looking at the crosses from the empty tomb. Right? It's, it's looking back. And I think the only way sometimes that we're going to make any sense of our own suffering is in looking back on it. In the midst of it, it never makes any sense. There, there's so many ways in life to be hurt. Right? Collectively, we probably know all of them the loss of a loved one, the unexpected bereavement, the disappointment of, of a barrenness in marriage, the loss of jobs, the loss of identity, the ongoing pain, the problems in families that don't get along. Where is God in the midst of that? Don't we ask that question? Where is God? God took our frustration, our anger, our disappointment on the cross And he was God, Emmanuel, there in the midst of our suffering. I don't think there's ever going to be easy answers to why there's so much suffering in the world. I don't think there's ever going to be any glib answers sort of saying, you know, you did that for this simple little outcome. But whatever the nature of the world is, what's obvious and clear is the answer that God gives to a suffering world is to suffer with us, is to be God, Emmanuel, and to bring ultimate victory. But not a simple and easy victory, not a, a victory of Hercules, not a victory of, uh, of God made flesh in the traditional sense of, of superpowers and X-Men and you know, amazing doctors, Doctor Strange, you know, with, with, with unbelievable power. It's power relinquished, the power to be with us. But look at the nature of everlasting life. Everlasting life is not a recipe, it's not a formula, it's not even a place. I don't know what your conception of heaven is, but Jesus gives an amazing view that everlasting life is not about a place. 
But it's about knowing and having God's nature revealed to us. It's about a progressive understanding. If God is infinite, it's going to take all eternity for us to know him a bit better. I don't know what questions you're going to bring to God when, when you have that longer interview with him, that longer sense of his presence, but, but I'm sure that there's enough time for all of our answers, all of our questions to be answered. The verse says it's about knowing God everlastingly. Everlasting life is knowing God. Jesus wanted only to reveal the nature of God's character, his love, his justice, his willingness to suffer with us and for us. That is what Easter is about. Easter is a a glorious celebration of the revelation of God's glory, not as we expected it, not as we anticipated it would be. The Jews expected it would be a conquering king, one like David, you know, great with the sword and the slingshot. Deal with all the nations, right? Put everything to right. Other people felt that the, the kingdom of God was going to have some other form and, 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 and variation. There were lots of would-be messiahs at the time of Jesus. Lots who died. Lots who were persecuted for, for what they were. But none of them are ones that we worship now. Because in the midst of all that hurt and anguish that was directed, there is also the resurrection. Also the power of life that's revealed that shows that everlasting life was in fact Jesus to give despite all appearances from Good Friday. Despite all the things that seemed to be going wrong, it was actually the fulfillment of the nature of God's self-revelation. God's autobiography was being written through these events. His story of his life, his glory revealed Not in power, but in power relinquished. Not in a superman in a traditional sense, but rather in a suffering servant who from the cross said, Father, forgive them. So many things are striking about Jesus. So unbelievable many things about his ministry and about his stories about his nature of his service to God. But one of the things that just strikes me over and over and over again about this Jesus God is that everything seemed to point to his relationship to God. Have you ever thought seriously about the parables? Ever tried to write a parable yourself? They're really tough to tell a good story unless you sort of take one of Jesus' parables and, and sort of change it a little bit. Right? You give it a slightly modern context. No longer you've got, you know, you've got 10 young women waiting for, uh, with oil lamps for a wedding to go on, but you're waiting for the power blackout to be over. I mean, you can update the stories, but they're the same stories. But, but Jesus would be able to see someone sowing their fields, be able to see a little drama unfold in a family, be able to see a widow looking for a coin, be able to see... Uh, unbelievable things in in, in the nature of life around him and all of those things spoke to him about God. One of the amazing stories I think which shows the difference between his glory and our glory is that uh, I've got a widow's mite. You can come up and see it. Widow's mite is two, there were two tiny coins that a woman put in, the smallest possible coin in denomination that the woman put into the collection. Jesus was watching that too. And, you know, they they might have put in gold coins. I brought one just for fun, right? They they might have done that. Uh, They they might have put in lots of wealth. They might have been very showy about what they do. But he singled out for glory the woman who had the best faith, 
She gave all that she had to live on. She gave two tiny little coins, and that was all. And Jesus saw the glory in that. Do we give God permission to reveal himself in our lives as he wants to reveal himself? I mean, that's the go-away question for me, and I hope for you. Do you have the openness that you can see God where you didn't expect him? That you would be alert to God's sightings in all sorts of ways? I confess I'm blessed every morning when I see uh, those that I won't even name them for lest I uh, take away from their, their, their service. But every morning they bring the communion bread and wine and they set it up quietly and they clean it up afterwards. I uh, hope, like me, you were blessed last week by Mike and Allie and the story of James. Uh, I don't think that's what they expected to get. I don't think it's what they were hoping, perhaps. But in their love of James and their sacrifice and their deeper knowledge of God, they revealed the love of God to me in a way that I don't think I could have ever experienced in any other way. I was in tears last week. I'm sure many of you were. It's not always the good times in life that reveal the glory of God. Are you going through a rough time? Can you pray that God would be glorified by the way you do it, by the way you drive, by the way you change diapers, by the way you care for your children, your grandchildren, or your, or your aging parents, by the way you deal with colleagues at work, the way you fill out your income tax. One of our good friends in, in British Columbia was a social worker, and he saw how social workers were continually being pinched for, always being cut back, always being there, and he, we had a small group with him, and uh, John challenged us and said, what does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to have servant love? He said, it can mean to be a taxpayer. Right? It, it can be that. And that's not to say everything the government does is right or, 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 or proper or that we shouldn't protest or we shouldn't stand up against it, but there's a lot of things that are really good that can take place. How are you a servant? Jesus was a servant and obedient and showed the glory of God when I meet with my students, when I mark their exam, when I give their lecture, when I work on a design. In all of those things, do I seek that God would be glorified? In my relationship with my neighbors, in my relationship in my family, my relationship to my money in all ways, are we open to God's sightings? By attending grief share, by helping to make food, <laughs> excuse me, for the big event that's coming. In all those ways, we can embed a little bit of God's character and God's glory in our prayers, in our thoughts, in our hearts. Not by glory is great things, not because we become billionaires, not because we win major awards, not because we achieve things in a great worldly sense, not because we're associated with a, win, a team that wins the championship, right? but because we love God. And we wish to embed that love in a way that brings God glory. We're going to move now to communion. Communion. Common union. Have you ever thought how much that resonates in, in verse 3 of this passage? Now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, Jesus and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the church's mission. Through the ages, through 
small villages breaking bread in Africa to uh, small uh, churches meeting in, in, in areas of persecution to uh, great cathedrals which celebrate communion to us through ages, through 2,000 years, through every conceivable language group, through every conceivable race, through every conceivable background, in every circumstance, we come together to a table to share the love and the knowledge of God. Because in this he reveals himself is the God of multiple forms of, of a, new, uh, a new covenant in his blood, a, his body which is broken for us. And in this we become participants in an eternal life. The church through the ages, if the church ever forgets that it's no longer the church, eternal life is to know and to celebrate and to be part of this in a way that's, that, that, that's mind-boggling and, and, and overwhelming, that the, the two natures, that God with us, that we have this body, this, this, this blood, this bread and this juice that enters into our body and becomes one with us, that we would be filled by the power and the glory and the presence of God through the grace of God which invites us to this feast, not because we're worthy, but because we're not. Not because we've achieved it, but because we're invited in as sinners to become saints by the power and the glory of what happens on the cross and what happened at Easter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us now not by an act of greatness, but by this everyday act of taking bread and juice and wine that represents wine that we will share with each other, that we will participate in this feast because you've invited us here and we've responded to the call. We praise you and thank you that we were sinners and now are saints, that by this acceptance of you into your life, the acceptance of this revelation of God, this new covenant in your blood, this breaking of bread that we would become your people and that we would celebrate with all people over the entire region of Durham and over all of Ontario and all of Canada and all of North America and all the world through all ages with all the church that we would know you, that we would be open to you and that this would be something that brings you satisfaction and brings to you that sense of reflected glory. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.